He holds all things together. What a great message when so often our lives feel like everything's coming apart and there's nothing we can do about it and things can feel so out of control. We said, Michael did during our announcements, that we're, we're here to help people grow in maturity in Christ, to know Jesus, to become like him, to make him the very center of our lives and of our preaching and our ministries as a church family. And that's what we're about. But it's not easy to do that in large part because we often have very distorted understanding of who Jesus actually is. Jason helped us with this very well last week as we thought about who Jesus isn't. We started off trying to clear up some misconceptions. And I'm so aware of the way that I get influenced by Lots of sources that aren't from God. We're constantly bombarded. I was just reading this week, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book that I highly recommend anybody read called Spiritual Depression. It's a lousy title. I'm not sure who came up with it. I would tell Martin Lloyd-Jones that right here if he were here, but maybe a publisher came up with it. It's, It's better titled, I think, Combating Joyless Christianity. And... It's such a helpful book, but in this book on spiritual depression, he talks about distractions, things that pull us away from what we should be focusing on in our lives, and it was amazing to me because he wrote it in the late 50s, and he said, our lives are filled with distractions, starting with the morning paper that's delivered to your house. And we often will read the morning paper before we read the Word of God, and and our minds will be going in a thousand different directions rather than focused on Christ. And then he said, and then add to that, some of you get an evening paper delivered to your house. And that further serves to distract you more. And I thought, oh my, what would Martin Lloyd-Jones think about the distractions today that are in our pockets? Any second we can have a million distractions, more than that, literally, more than a million distractions that are available there in, in our pockets on our phones. It's not just a morning and evening paper. It's a bombardment of massive messages we're getting all the time, just driving down the road on billboards and, and from, from songs we hear and movies we watch being constantly, imperceptibly often contaminated in our thinking. And when it comes to Jesus, throughout his entire earthly ministry and ever since, We as God's people and God himself has been combating distraction from who Jesus really is that often include truth about who he is, but not the central truth about who he is. And the most insidious lies and distractions are ones that are largely true, but missing the essential realities we desperately need most. I remember coming across this when I was in grad school. When I was in grad school, there was this thing called the, the Jesus Seminar that was coming up with all these theories about who Jesus really was. Every Easter and Christmas, I'm, I'm never ceasing to be amazed at how often media gets a hold of this idea that the Jesus we know from the scriptures, which is the Jesus we know, 
from history and from God's revelation isn't quite sufficient for us. So we've got to find the real Jesus. And major news outlets will often have these articles, who was the real Jesus? And they have this picture of Jesus. And, and then these so-called Bible scholars who really don't believe the Bible is the word of God, but still want to hang on to some vestige of who Jesus is, they will offer to us who they think Jesus really is. And I'll never forget coming across this description of actually an interview with a leader of the Jesus Seminar and who he believes Jesus is and how he's trying to rescue Jesus from the Bible and rescue Jesus from the church. And, and these are just a few ways of the ways he tries to describe Jesus. He says, I, we want to set Jesus free from the scriptural and creedal and experiential prisons in which we've incarcerated him. Poor Jesus needs to be let out of the, the jail of the Bible. And they want to bring about, they say, a radical reformation. And among other things, they, they want to have a reinvention of Christianity that would supplant traditional Christian theology and practice, and in its place, build a faith built upon more rational and historically accurate views of the life and teachings of Jesus. This new Christianity, they say, would, among other things, emphasize Jesus as a teacher rather than a divine being. It would replace the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper with just a common meal. And would emphasize forgiveness and freedom over punishment and piety. And then it ends this way, the quote. And endorse protected recreational sex among consenting adults. Aha! We get to the goal all along. Isn't it amazing how often very sophisticated sounding theories can often so clearly boil down to, I just want to do what I want to do especially in the bedroom, right? It's, that's, that you could describe so much of the worldview of our society that way. Autonomy in the name of autonomous freedom that I really want. I, I want some religion in there. I want some spirituality in there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very happy to invite Jesus into the picture in some way as long as I get to be my own little God. That's what it so often boils down to. This is how... Um, Oprah Winfrey put it one time, incredibly influential spiritual leader in our country. You know, remember when 9-11, I'm serious, 9-11 happened, and we had an interfaith religious service in Yankee Stadium. Some of you weren't alive then, but I, I'll never forget it. They had an interfaith religious service in Yankee Stadium about a couple of weeks after September 11th, the tragedy of September 11th happened. And you know who they asked to preside over that interfaith religious service? Oprah. A talk show host was the high priestess of American religion. And, and here's her basic take. She, she would get angry if you said she wasn't a Christian. But here's how she describes her Christianity. She says, the great mistake people make, this is a quote, is believing that there's only one way. There are millions of paths to get to God. And it doesn't matter if you call it God or not. There couldn't possibly be only one way. Living with a loving heart is all that matters. God, does he care about your heart or whether or not you call his son Jesus? We need to understand the indescribable hugeness of what we call God. We need to take God out of the box, she says. 
Again, this idea that, that to get an idea of who God is from the Bible and the way Christians, real Christians have actually always believed Jesus to be, that's keeping him in a box. We need to let him out of the box and, and let him be as big as he really is. Now, that can sound good in a lot of ways. And, and it, you, I hope you see, though, it, it's a way of distorting who Jesus is, minimizing who Jesus is in the scriptures, and getting a Jesus that fits with who I want him to be. It's reversing everything. And overt, intentional efforts to redefine, reimagine, explain away the biblical portrait of Jesus have invaded our thinking. I think so many of us, even though we say we believe the Bible and say we believe in the Christian historic faith that Christians have held to for millennia, I think deep down, a lot of us really struggle with whether or not that biblical picture of Jesus is right or not, and maybe Oprah's onto something. And so we actually end up figuring out ways to talk about our Christian faith without Jesus. Let me read a portion. There was an article written a while back about a player for UCLA's football team who was a very strong Christian. I actually know the guy who discipled him at UCLA, and I know this player would not have been happy with this portrayal of him in the Orange County Register. Here's what it says. This is an article about a guy who played defensive tackle for UCLA, Kenyon Coleman, and it, it, the headline in the Orange County Register says, Coleman builds spiritual foundation for UCLA. I want to read to you every time Kenyon Coleman's faith in Christ and its effects is referred to in this article. Here they are. He's the Bruin spiritual patriarch. He often quotes... Bible verses and preaches faith. They often spend time talking about religion and how religion enables him to cope through anything. He builds everything on God, and he, he will say that if your life is built on God, the foundation can't be touched. And the best thing in life is having God. He's the spiritual leader of the team, the coach says. He sees God as a possession atop all other things, and religion is his greatest priority. He's always asking, how does this relate to religion? How does God play into it? That's it. That's the article. That's every time his Christian faith is referred to. Do you notice anything missing? Jesus, yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I don't think it's because in the interview, Kenyon Coleman watered down or was distracted away from Jesus and his faith. There's just this way that we can learn to talk about Christ and our faith in Jesus, where Jesus never shows up. God, religion, spirituality. And, and we even learn to talk that way because who's really going to get upset with you if you say, my faith is very important to me? He's a man of deep faith. Gotta have faith. Without faith, how can you get through anything? It's almost as if the object of your faith it's irrelevant. As long as you've got a lot of this thing inside you called faith that'll enable you to get through another day in this tough world. The picture in the Bible couldn't be more different than that. And I want to read to you a passage of Scripture that so puts these ways of thinking about Jesus in a radically different perspective. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our Advent series, today we look at Jesus as God. We'll talk about Jesus as 
as a true human being. And his role is the savior of the world. But today we want to think about Jesus as the son of God. And Colossians 1 is a powerful portrayal of Jesus. As you think about who Jesus is, we need to have all the pictures the Bible gives us of him in our Jesus portfolio. Life is like developing a God portfolio where we add more and more images and ideas and perceptions of Jesus to that portfolio, and we want to have one that is filled with all the biblical understanding of Jesus we need. And it's almost here in Colossians 1 like Paul is trying to pack everything he possibly can in to a few verses. You'll see what I mean. Colossians chapter 1 describes Jesus this way. We'll start at verse 13. Let's pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to learn from you. Not just through a frail, fallen, struggling preacher, but through your word as the spirit works so that we see Jesus more clearly than ever before. That's why we came, Lord, because we want to know Christ and make him known. And so help us now in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 13. He has delivered us, God has, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Is that awesome? That, my. I mean, we could just read that every time. If all we could, if we just read that every time we came to church, we could just worship God for all of eternity based on just what's in those few verses. It's just incredible. We, we've got seven verses here that pack in as much as they possibly could about Jesus. That's why I've broken the record for the number of points in a single sermon with this morning's sermon. My previous record was 16-point sermon from First John, uh, from Third John. I, I preached a whole sermon on, on the third letter of John, and there were 16 points. I'm shattering that record today with a 20-point sermon. Yes, a 20-point sermon. Yeah, you ready? All right, here we go. 20-point sermon, 13 points about Jesus and seven points of implication and application. You ready? Here we go. We're actually going to get you home, I promise. Here we go. Uh, And if you don't want to keep track of these points, what I would like you to do is just just try to imagine what I saw Kent Kunke do 
during the worship service because that sort of summarizes the whole sermon. If you don't want to do the 20 points, just think of Kent. When we started singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he was standing in back, and by the time we got to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Kent went like this. He went like that. That's the point of the sermon. If you don't want the 20, just get that in light of Jesus as the newborn king and glory to him. That's the point of the sermon. But here we go. Uh, the first point, and, and, and if, you, if you think I have too many points, I'd like you to read this passage and tell me which one I shouldn't have included. <laughs> and, and I won't agree with you. All right. So here's the first point. Jesus is the beloved son. Now, here's the beauty of starting in verse 13 instead of 15, where the break usually is. We start off with this vital title, that'll work, this vital title of Jesus as the beloved son. Beloved by whom? The father. So immediately, we've got the father-son relationship in view here. So even though there is an incredible exaltation of the supremacy of Christ here, the father isn't left behind because the very title son brings the father with him. And when we back up and understand the biblical perspective, the spirit comes along as well all the time. And so here's the beauty of focusing on Christ. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And what does Jesus do? He brings us to the father. What does the father do? He says, have you seen my son? What does a son do? He says, you make sure you depend on the spirit because he's the comforter that I'm going to send when I leave and he's the one you need to depend on. And when the spirit works, what does he do? He exalts Christ. What does Christ do? He brings us to the father. And the father says, you've seen my beloved son. And the son says, depend on the spirit. And on and on it goes in this beautiful intra-Trinitarian interdependence and beautiful expression of who God is. When we focus on Jesus biblically, we don't leave the father and the spirit behind. And so he's the beloved son. Second, he's the redeemer. He redeems us. You see this here in verse 13. And then 14 says he's the redeemer. He's the one who redeems us. He buys us back from our sinful condition. He brings us out of slavery to sin and Satan and death. And he brings us in to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God does through Christ. He defeats sin for us. He defeats the powers of darkness on our behalf. He brings us to life out of death. We go from darkness to light and death to life in Christ. Now, if you don't think you have a problem with sin, and you don't think you have a problem with powers of darkness, it's just fairy tales people make up to describe bad things that happen. Well, how about death? Do you have a problem with death? If you don't have a solution to death, you've got a problem. It's coming. It's coming. And, and so Jesus frees us from our greatest enemies of sin and Satan and death. So he's the beloved son, he's the redeemer in verse 14. In verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. So he's the revealer of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the redeemer of the world, but he's the revealer of God. So we could say Jesus comes to show us who God is and show us who we are, who are intended to be as those created by God for him in relationship with him. So Jesus 
shows us God as the beloved son. He's the image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, the apostle John says, but God who's at the Father's side has made him known. He's the revealer of God. He's the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, as the writer of the Hebrews says. In verse 15, we also see him as the firstborn of creation. Don't think that means he had a beginning point. What it means is he's the firstborn of humanity. In other words, human beings were the, the pinnacle of God's creation in the first creation. And we see in Jesus that he is the pinnacle of the pinnacle. He is the ultimate of the ultimate. Human beings alone are made in the image of God, and Jesus is that finishing work of the first creation, but he's also the beginning of the new creation. He's the firstborn of the dead, verse 15. You know, what's interesting about this is Israel, several times in the Old Testament, is referred to as God's firstborn. They were God's means of seeing God in the world, of having a relationship with God in the world. But the nation of Israel is just pointing to the fulfillment of those old covenant promises in Christ. And so humanity is the pinnacle of the first creation, and true humanity of Jesus is the pinnacle of the history of creation, and he's also the starting point of a new creation in him. Moira, you wrote your whole doctoral dissertation on this, didn't you, Moira? New creation, didn't you? Yes, you did. Thank you. Thank you. You forgot about that. I know. I know. I read stuff I wrote at one point, and I think, this is pretty good. Who wrote this? I could never write this. It's amazing. You did, Moyer. We have a guy who's one of the world's leading experts on this topic. What am I doing up here? Moyer, come up here. Um, no, I won't put you on a spot like that. Uh, but yeah, th this is what's happening. He's making all things new. Now, the way he does that, is to make humans new because we are the ultimate in creation. Now, if you think that's going to be bad for the environment, it's not. And having some sort of speciesism, as actually some people call it, that humans are the superior thing in creation. Not to do whatever they want with the world, but to steward it well, right? And so we are the pinnacle of creation, but we've got a horrible sin problem, a, a def defacing of who we are. And Jesus comes and he restores and he redeems and he brings about a new creation. And we find that, number five, he is, in verse 16, the one who made everything. Now, this puts Jesus on such a radically different plane than all these people trying to make him into just a great moral teacher or one of many, if not millions, as Oprah says, ways to approach God. When we see that Jesus is the creator, he created everything. Everything's made by him, and not only by him, but did you see, for him. It's for him. It's for his glory. It's for him to be known. The heavens declare the glory of God, and we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ more clearly than anywhere else. He made everything. He made Oprah. He made Gandhi. He made Muhammad. He made the Buddha. He, he made everybody and everything. How could he just be one possible legitimate way to get to God when he's creator God? Do you see how completely different this portrayal of Jesus is than we so often hear in our day? 
He is before all things, verse 17. I love that. He's eternal. He's the eternal God. If you walk into the, um, the science building at Wheaton College, there's a giant piece of granite, and on it is engraved, carved in this granite, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a pretty cool verse to walk under on your way to study physics and every other science. He's not just the creator. He's the sustainer. He's holding everything together. The reason you and all you are is working the way it is is because Jesus is sustaining that reality. He's the creator and the sustainer. Verse 18, he's the head of the church. This poem that we have in 5 through 20 now shifts from the original creation for, to the new creation that is seen in the people of God that are made new creatures in Christ by faith in Jesus, the creator and the sustainer. He's the head of the church. And so we mutually depend on him. We adopted Caroline when she was eight, and she'd only been here a couple of months and, and I remember we were sitting in the old sanctuary, and I preached a sermon on the church. What is the church? And we got home, and I was wondering if she was understanding anything because she came only speaking Mandarin except for colors and numbers and bathroom terms. But she, she, um, she drew a picture during my sermon on the church, and I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. I don't know where it is. I've got to find it somewhere. And I was wondering if she understood the sermon. And when she showed me the picture she drew while she was listening to my sermon, it was a picture of a church. And sitting on top of this church was this giant guy who looked straight out of 1974 with this mustache and beard and long hair. But it's Jesus sitting on top of the church building with his arms folded like this. And the picture was saying, this church is mine. And I said, she understood the sermon. Maybe better than some seminary props sitting out there. She understood the sermon, this little girl, right? She got it. Jesus is the head of the church. This body image that Paul loves to use for the church is this interconnected, interdependent organism that God has made to be the main vehicle of making him known through Christ and his finished work. And we then need to constantly recognize that Jesus is the boss. He's the head. He's in charge. He determines everything. So much conflict in the church so much nonsense you read about all the time, bully pastors and abuse and, and, and dysfunction and the celebrity thing in American Christianity, all this stuff that so distorts and distracts and dilutes a focus on Jesus. If we can put Jesus sitting on top of the church saying, this is mine, everything else falls into place, and I'm so grateful for, for leaders of the church that I've been privileged to lead with who get that. So no matter what happens, it doesn't mean we, we, we don't have sin problems and disagreements and butt heads, but there's a sense that Jesus is the only senior pastor who's ever lived. He's the senior pastor of every church. He's the shepherd. We're all under shepherds, all of us. And so, so if Jesus is the head, it puts everything else in its right order. 
We have a new creation in individuals, but collectively we have a people of God that describes who we are and how God's working now in this world. And so he's the head of the church. He's the beginning of new life, the firstborn from the dead. He's leading the way out of the grave that we desperately needed him to do. That's who he is. He's the first principle or the source. He's the beginning of everything. He's the priority. One commentator puts it this way. Christ's rule over the final great enemies of mankind, sin and death, with Jesus' resurrection, and with him the new age has dawned. The new man has emerged from among the old humanity whose life he has shared, whose pain he has made his own. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does for us now. And that makes him supreme. He's preeminent now, verse 18. God's plan is not merely to sum up the old creation and to fix it, but to inaugurate a new creation. And it's all in him. He's the preeminent one. Before all things as a creator, the preeminent leader of all the new things God's bringing about. And in him, all the fullness of God dwells. It's pleased to dwell. It all dwells in him, all of it. God isn't, isn't divided into three parts, like a pie, right? Where, where Jesus is one of the big pieces of the pie and Father's the other piece and the Spirit's the other piece and we got three pieces of the pie. No, everything that is God is in Christ and the Father and the Spirit. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. And he's the reconciler. This is huge. And these descriptions of Jesus that we get from these different sources and from the media, they very seldom get to dealing with the problem of our sin. And as God, Jesus doesn't just show us God, he restores our relationship with God as the reconciler between humanity and all creation. That's the 12th thing we learn about him. And here's the last one. He's the peacemaker, verse, uh, verse 20. Number 13. He's the peacemaker. He's the one who brings peace between former enemies of God and God, who are now his children and his friends by faith in him and in the sonship we share in Christ. Jesus has done everything we need for him to do. He's the peacemaker. We were enemies, and now we're reconciled to him through Christ. He's the peacemaker, and he does it by his blood. This is awesome. The creator God becomes a human and he is therefore capable of dying, of bleeding. The Bible says that God bought a church with his own blood. If you want to summarize everything we've been saying, it's the first creed of the church. Jesus is Lord. So those are the 13 things we need to know about Jesus. Here are the seven things that means for us. One, if Jesus is who this passage says he is, we actually can know God. We have real knowledge of God. As I said, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's who we have in Jesus. We have true knowledge of God. Two, the implication is we have true redemption in Jesus. There's nothing left to earn, nothing left to prove, nothing left to demonstrate, to accomplish. Jesus paid it all. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy. 
And three, that means the one who came to save us is able to save us. Our sympathetic high priest has all the power he needs, all the wisdom he needs, everything he needs to bring about the salvation we desperately needed. Listen to Hebrews 7, 24. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, with nothing left to do, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a sympathetic high priest who's powerful to do what we need him to do out of that sympathy. Three, if Jesus is who this passage says he is, we're utterly dependent on him for our very existence as well as our salvation, as well as our fruitfulness in life. When Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, unless you abide in me, you will bear no fruit, none. You can do nothing apart from me. We need to take that seriously. So we're utterly dependent on him for everything, everything. And that means our lives have purpose. Our lives have meaning. They have significance, number four. We have a reason to live, to glorify Christ, to live in relationship with our creator, to bear fruit abiding in him. But five, and a lot of us don't like this, that means we answer to Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If he's your savior, he's your Lord. And we do what he says. The Christian life has a required obedience built into it. We answer to him, not ourselves, not our opinions, not the latest opinion polls, but we answer to Jesus for what a life of meaning and purpose looks like. But then six, we have hope. We have hope. We have hope for ourselves as individuals. I, I sometimes get so discouraged by my lack of growth. I've been at this Christian thing as long as I can remember. And I, I've been on this earth decades, and sometimes I feel like I haven't grown at all. Now, that's not true, but I can sure feel that way. The, the more I grow closer to God, and the more the Spirit works in my life, the more I'm aware of my sin and my failure and my shortcomings so I can feel like I'm going backwards. I'm not, but I'm going forward. But boy, I can feel discouraged at the pettiness and the immaturity and the sin I battle all the time. But I'm never going to lose hope because the one who saved me and the one who saved you if you've trusted Jesus is the one who made you. The one who has made you new in him. The, the one who is redeeming you and sanctifying you and making you like himself. He made you in the first place. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. So even though I can feel very discouraged, I know the one who made me in the first place is able to remake me as the spirit works. Kenny's father-in-law, Betsy's dad. How many, how many classic cars does he have? He's got, I don't know, double digits maybe, Mobile di double digits maybe. But that guy has, has taken automobiles many times, taken them completely apart and put them all back together perfectly. It's incredible to see these cars. He knows every square inch of these automobiles that he's taken apart and made as perfect as you can make a car in a fallen world. And, and if I'm in the car with him, and some noise starts, it sounds pretty bad. Now, when I'm in my car and a noise starts, like a light just went in the other day, I'm like, this is going to be expensive. 
I don't know what it is or how expensive, but I bet it's going to be expensive, right? And I, I've never done that with a car. I'm a complete hacker with cars. I, I do what has to be done, and I take it to, to Freddie the rest of the time. Not Betsy's dad. When he's in the car, he knows exactly what's making the noise. He knows exactly what you need to do to stop that noise. And he's got the tools to do it. And a lift. He's got everything he needs. The knowledge, the ability, the power, the, the tools, everything. And that's who God is for us in Christ. Jesus has everything he needs. The knowledge, the wisdom, the power, the love, the sympathy, all of it. And so we can have hope in ourselves. We can have hope for ministry. If, when you commit to ministry, it can wear you out. Paul says he experienced famine and shipwreck and beatings and whippings and rejection and starvation. He experienced all the hardest things of life. And he says, above all this is my burden for the churches. My concern for the churches, that can wear you out once you get committed to helping people. So ask our deacons. They'll tell you. The, the needs never stop, and you need wisdom, and you need resources, and sometimes you have no idea how to help people well. And I know so many of you understand this because you care about helping people, and you can get f f compassion fatigue in a world where we know when an earthquake happens within seconds of it happening across the world. That'll wear you out. But there's hope. There's hope to stay at it with junior high kids who don't seem to be showing any indication that all your efforts are getting you anywhere. With your own kids, I don't know. Whoever it is with your neighbors who just seem so hard-hearted to the Lord you want to reach, there's hope because God made those junior high kids and your neighbor and he made everybody and he made everything. And so when we commit to his redemptive purposes, there's abundant hope. And we have hope for the whole cosmos. When we sinned, everything went wrong. And when we get rightly aligned with God again through Christ, everything starts down the path of being made right. There's coming a day when there won't be one more cancer cell. <laughs> That's exciting. There's coming a day when there won't be any more war, any more murders, any more hatred, any more division. It, it'll be all things new under the one who's our head, who's preeminent, he's supreme, he's above all. And that's who Jesus is for us. He is our redeemer, our reconciler. Listen to Augustine. Man's maker was made man. Why? That the bread might be hungry, that the fountain thirst, that the light sleep, that the way be tired from the journey that strength might be weak and that life might die. And listen to Thomas Watson. That man should be made in God's image is a wonder. But that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. That the ancient of days would be born, he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. Oh, we've been praying ever, ever since we decided to try to preach a sermon on who Jesus is for Advent, we've been praying that more than anything else, the wonder of who Christ is would come home to us all like never before. And when that happens, there's a clarity, there's a power to our lives because there's a dependence on the only one who can make us new, the only one who can restore this horribly broken and sinful world. 
Jesus is worth everything to us. We depend on him. We find our meaning in him. And we answer to him. And finally, we worship him. That's, that's how everything concludes. That Jesus, in Philippians 2, is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship is the ultimate culmination of all of this. We have hope and finally we have worship. We worship him. That's our whole lives. All of life is worship. We gather and do it corporately, but we do it privately, all by ourselves, in in our living room, in, in our bedrooms. We worship Jesus in our kitchens, in our communities, in our workplace. Our whole lives are acts of worship to the one who came to show us who God is and save us from our greatest enemies. That's who Jesus is for us, a great wonder. And I pray that God will restore in all of us an understanding of the one who is God veiled in flesh so that with Kent we can all say yes to who Jesus is. Lord, help us to understand Christ in the fullness of deity that he is. Help us to understand him as the preeminent one, the one who brings peace through the blood of his cross, the one who made everything and sustains everything and brings reconciliation through his self-sacrificial life on our behalf. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never trusted Jesus, I pray that this morning that you have brought and are bringing clarity in a way that makes him so much more than just a great teacher or one appropriate way among many, but the Savior and Lord we all desperately need who alone can save us from ourselves and the sin that has so ravaged this world. And Lord, I pray out of this new life we have in him, we would be ministers of reconciliation, proclaiming Christ for who he is and for what he's done that we also desperately needed him to do. Lord, as Jesus leaves the comforts of heaven so we could find the comfort of home with you, I pray that we would leave the comfort of our lives and move into a world that desperately needs to hear about this peacemaker, even if it makes our lives much, much harder. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.